Coming up, a quick update on yesterday's review of the all-new model year 22 Kia Sportage. In today's report, choosing the right powertrain and how to approach that, inspired by a question from you. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. <laughs> for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously. Or you can just click the card that potentially at least is uh, up there now, dude. Okay, this question comes from Tom Harsis. And I hope I got that right without mangling your surname, Tom, if I did... Unwitting, dude. Can you advise, as it's not in your review, sorry, Tom, how the DCT goes with the powertrain? I love the vehicle's features and your comments have made my day. I get the feeling, as it's not mentioned, sorry, dude, that the DCT is fine. It is. We'll get to that. I have seen some reviews that say it's not. Some say it's okay and it's smooth. I value your opinion, though. Well, thank you, Tomo. Sorry for that omission in yesterday's report, dude. Now, the DCT, if you're not familiar with what a DCT is, it's like a dual-clutch transmission, which is also the same sort of thing as Volkswagen's DSG. What it basically is, is kind of an automated manual transmission with two parallel gear trains and a computer that says, which one do I need next? Will it be a shift up or a shift down, okay? You don't need to know how these things work, but you need to know that a DCT is different to a standard automatic, which has a torque converter and sort of a softer and in many ways more foolproof kind of design. Now, the big things about DCT transmissions are the directness of the shifting. They give a really sporty character to the shifting experience. It's positive. Okay, And they also deliver really good fuel economy because you're not wasting any energy in a torque converter. And this gives rise to a little bit of sort of rubber banding kind of feedback in some driving situations. This is across all DCTs from time to time. Okay, But you get this massive fuel economy benefit of 6 to 10% and you benefit from that all the time. Whenever you're turning and burning, you're getting this efficiency benefit from the different kind of drive. Okay, So there's that to consider. You really shouldn't use a DCT, you shouldn't abuse it by doing the same sort of thing as riding the clutch in a manual in traffic. And the way you achieve this, okay, if you want to damage a DCT, is you get on a hill and you go really, really slow, inching forward under load, okay? Don't do that. When the traffic moves, just engage and drive, okay? Like, do that and you won't damage your DCT. DCTs are also not really as good at towing as conventional autos, despite what car manufacturers say. So there's that. I drove the 1.6 turbo petrol DCT first. I've driven all the powertrains in Sportage and I drove them for about an hour and a half each kind of thing, okay? So I started with the 1.6 turbo petrol DCT in a GT line and then I jumped into the diesel and at the end of the drive program, I drove the base model Chitois with two litre Atmo petrol engine and six-speed automatic transmission. So we'll talk about all of that in just a second, right? But first, I want to just answer Tom's question, which is, 
We've seen this powertrain a lot from Hyundai Kia. So it's well sorted and quite reliable and you don't need to worry about that. And one thing I did notice, because the drive program kicked off in Sydney from their headquarters in Macquarie Park slash North Ride, and then we went out through Dural and Wiseman's Ferry, and that's the leg that I drove this powertrain, right? So in traffic in the morning in the 1.6 DCT. And the thing about DCTs is they use a computer to figure out what gear is the powertrain likely to need next, okay? And that's really clear cut in some situations. Like if you're sitting at the lights stopped and the lights go green and you're first cab off the rank and you put your foot down, you're in first gear and you're accelerating, so the revs are increasing, you've got your foot on the gas, the computer goes, most likely we're gonna need second gear next, right? And nine times out of 10, the computer is right, so second gear is pre-selected and you are good to go in second. And then, bam, the shift happens, it's pretty seamless and you get going again. If you keep your foot on the gas, it'll pre-select third and the shift will be the same, okay? And then let's say you are coming downhill, you're going into a corner, you're on the brakes, the revs are falling in say fourth gear, the computer goes, mm, gonna need third in a second. So it pre-selects third and just at the right time, you shift into third. And that's quite clear cut as well. So in situations where you are accelerating, clearly or decelerating clearly, the computer knows what to do. But there are plenty of situations, typically in traffic, where it's easy to confuse the DCT because you're on the gas and then you're off the gas and someone cuts you off and you're off the gas and then you want to speed up and get into a gap over here and then suddenly you get off the gas because you need to conform to the new speed of the traffic in that lane after you've just zipped in there. Okay, And that's all very difficult for the computer to figure out because there's no eyes on the road, dude, right? Like it can just see throttle position and revs and what's happening over recent time, okay? It, it looks for a trend and chooses the next gear. So in these dithering situations where the traffic environment evolves rapidly in between accelerating frames of references and decelerating frames of references, DCT type transmissions get confused at times and they find themselves wrong footed with the next highest gear selected. But really the traffic environment evolves rapidly and things change and then you need the next lowest gear and the transmission has to go blah, 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 and figure that out, right? Which is quite the challenge. I'd have to say that this is the best software control iteration that I have seen for this transmission in the current Sportage, right? So I'd suggest that they've done a really good job evolving the software so that it's better at predicting the future than all previous iterations of that transmission that I have driven. It's still equally good at clear-cut driving, like if you're driving in a spirited way on a windy road, it's dead easy for the transmission to know exactly what to do there, all right? It's in the dithering situations where the software is most challenged, and I don't know what mad voodoo they've pulled off, but they have made this adaptation process in confusing traffic environments much more clear-cut. 
And I'd have to suggest that many people who drive that 1.6 DCT powertrain in Sportage will be absolutely unaware that it is anything other than an automatic transmission. And that's probably the biggest compliment you could pay the chaps in R&D who sorted out all of those details. Let me just detain you here in the fabrication wing of the palatial fat cave, just briefly. Partly because I did have a dude reach out to me last night and ask me what this device is right there. What is it, he said. And interestingly enough, quite a pointed question, I think you'll agree shortly. The only thing which he imagined it may be is a nipple polisher, unquote. And I thought... Some people do have fertile imaginations, don't they, Just? Sorry to burst your bubble, dude. It's not a nipple polisher. It's a porter band. A cheap-ass one, because, hey, <laughs> in line with my character generally, a portable band saw. It's powered by 240 volts, although you can get them battery if you want. It's a great device for cutting up steel tube, you know, square section, steel tube, bit of pipe, whatever, compared with the death machine, which most people might use, which would also be known as the four to five inch angle grinder fitted with a cutting disc. Very potentially dangerous, that particular configuration. Like angle grinders are great, don't get me wrong. They're really good at grinding, but in DIY amateur kind of hands with a cutting disc, it's an each way bet. Emergency room, here we come. Porter band, much safer, just saying. But I'm really here to talk to you about the sponsor of this program, which is Olight, the torch company. They're a great supporter of this channel. They make content like this possible, and I thank them for it. After all, I do not accept money from the car industry, okay? So this is the Javelot Pro 2. It is a flat-out searchlight, like that's its main purpose. Great for hunting, boating, four-wheel driving, things of that nature. Two and a half thousand lumens out of the pointy end here. And its party trick is this very clever reflector, which just gets that beam and keeps it so tight and just throws it so far downrange, okay? Like more than a kilometre is the official spec. I think it's a thousand and fifty metres, okay? And... If you are a long way offshore in a boat and you need to see something, you need to find something, this could be a real advantage for you. Also great for four-wheel driving. You can get a weapons mounting kit for a rifle for this baby and a tail switch activation kit so you can thumb activate it if you want to. So it's very versatile like that. The two brightest settings are accessible from the tail switch, like pretty bright and then, oh my God, can I please have my retinas back bright? And all four settings are available from this switch on the barrel, which is quite clever. And 45% off during the sale, okay? So it's a really good flashlight for that kind of application. I've been playing around with it. You can, uh, you can shoot a lot of light a hell of a long way and, you know, spot wildlife in the trees at night and things of that nature. It's quite therapeutic. Like if you take the kids camping and just take them just spotting, you know, possums in trees and things of that nature, that could be awesome for them. It could be a bit of an opportunity for them to decouple from the dreaded LCD screen on their phone or their tablet, whatever. You could show them reality at night. Who knew? 
Okay, so the brightness settings are two and a half thousand lumens, then there's 600 on setting number two, and then 150. And for those times when you just want a little bit of light around the campsite, and you don't want to, you know, scorch someone's retinas in the process or destroy your own night vision, you get 15 in the lowest setting, just 15 lumens. And if you were to use it like that, the thing would run for 12 days. And this is a substantial upgrade on the Javelot Pro as well. It's got something like... Uh, 19, 20% more peak light output and also greater battery endurance as well. They're just well built and you pay for something like this once, you carry it with you everywhere and it's like old faithful, it just works, dude. And that's really all I've got to say about that. You know, there's a bunch of different torches. I carry a mini every day. I will shoot myself if it's not in my pocket now, but thankfully it is. This is the mini too. It's been thoroughly reliable, so, you know, it's also... Can I please have my retinas back? But, you know, I urge you to buy during the sale because the value proposition is unbeatable. Links in the description. There's a whole bunch of torches on a discount right now, site-wide. And if you miss the sale because you weren't subscribed, like, the code is also in the description and that'll get you 10% off whenever you decide to shop. So anyway, thanks very much. We'll go back and talk about the powertrains for Sportage now and which one is absolutely right for you. It can be so confronting at the dealership, right? Because you are just assailed by all of this choice. Like you can say, yeah, I want a Sportage. And then it's like, well, there's four different powertrains, dude, because there's three engines and four different transmissions, including a manual in the two liter Atmo. Okay, so, and you go, which one do I want? Do I want the diesel? I've heard they're filthy. And do I want a turbo engine or is the base model Atmo two liter six speed automatic just, is it good enough? Okay. And the sales dude, I wouldn't ask a sales dude for advice on all of this because do you really know if a sales dude is telling you what you need to know or what he needs to achieve, which is if they've got a stockpile of a particular powertrain over here good to go, what's to stop him talking you into that? when in fact a different powertrain might be better for you, but you might have to wait for it. And that might be not quite as good a deal for sales dude, okay? So there is this potential conflict of interest, and I'm not accusing all car salesmen of being cut snakes who will just serve their own agenda, but plenty of them are, and you don't know if you're in front of one of those. So you've got to kind of protect yourself a little bit. So here we go. I have not driven the manual. I don't expect many people will buy the manual. Not going to comment on the manual, okay, because largely irrelevant. But if you're just an average sort of driver, like a mum or a dad, and you want an average sort of mid-size SUVs to do all of that driving, like to take mum or dad to the station and to get the kids to school and sport and go to the shops and pick up the groceries and go to Bunnings and come back with Christ knows what in the back. Like if that's you and you're not a driving nutcase, then... The 2.0-litre Atmo engine with the six-speed automatic transmission is going to be just fine. And it's going to save you like two grand or something because it costs two and a half grand to upgrade from the 2.0-litre Atmo base engine to the 1.6 turbo petrol engine, 
right? And that is a big spend if you really don't want that sort of next level performance, okay? But you do get a lot more performance if you upgrade to that superior powertrain. And it is a superior powertrain in just about every respect because not only is it a more refined powertrain but it's also packaged with all-wheel drive and all-wheel drive is a dead set advantage in the wet with a more powerful powertrain like less wheel spin and also an advantage if you go for a little explore down some sort of dirt track it doesn't have to be hardcore blue singlet four-wheel driving track either it can just be a fire trail or a decent sort of dirt road and you might even take the tribe camping or something right and then it pisses down with rain overnight as it always does when you try and have one of these nice ideas to expose the kids to this and decouple them from their screens however briefly right and then you and the dirt track that you poke down pretty easily turns to slush, essentially, and that can be a bit of a challenge to get out of in a front-drive 2-litre Atmos six-speed job, right? All-wheel drive, going to handle that much better, okay? So there's that. And I'd have to suggest that if you upgrade even further to the diesel, right, the diesel is going to cost you more again, like $3,000 more again. And you'll have to excuse me referring to my notes here because I can't keep it all in my head, right? So the diesel's big trick is fuel economy. Like you get 14% better fuel economy because diesel tolerates more compression. And when it ignites inside the engine, it expands through a greater range and gives you more fuel economy. So and car makers never say this enough, right? Because diesel's had a bad reputation since 2015. Thanks a lot, Volkswagen. But the 14% fuel economy benefit is really also a 14% CO2 emissions benefit because every kilogram of hydrocarbon fuel that you burn is locked into a strict proportional relationship with the amount of CO2 you emit. So if you burn roughly 14% less fuel, diesel in this case, you emit roughly 14% less CO2. And I say roughly because it's in proportion to the mass, not the volume, right? But there's not really that much density difference between gasoline, like petrol, and diesel. So the benefit is more or less the same as the change in fuel economy. So if you care about that stuff, the diesel is actually more green, quote unquote, than the petrol alternative, right? And you will save 14% as well. So there's that, okay? The other thing that you get with the diesel, which is immediately apparent when you drive the two back to back, and I jumped out of the 1.6 turbo petrol into the diesel, the diesel only makes about this much more peak engine power. So in terms of outright acceleration, they're going to be more or less line ball. But for driving, there's a chalk and cheese kind of difference because in those middle revs where you're always driving in traffic, right, like at about 2,000 RPM or something, the diesel makes 60% more power right? And that is like night and day, and it makes the diesel effortless. It doesn't need to shift gears as much to deliver the performance that you demand with your right foot in normal driving, okay? So in that respect, 
the diesel is a really satisfying and kind of low key engine to drive. The downside, I guess, is that it is slightly noisier in the cabin, but you would have to be a pretty hard market, a market down for that, versus CO2 benefit, fuel economy benefit, and 60% more power. So to me, this is kind of how this plays out, right? You should also be aware that the diesel is also packaged with all-wheel drive. So everything I just said regarding wet weather performance on sealed roads and minimising wheel spin under heavy acceleration and taking the kids camping and it pisses down, it goes doubly so for the diesel, right? Because you will get, in addition to all of those advantages from all-wheel drive, you're also going to get about 14% more range between refills. And that can make a difference for long distance touring at night through remote places which might have fuel stations shut down and all of that kind of thing. And if you do have some outback trip planned, it's also worth remembering that in some of these outback places, which would be accessible in a sportage, right, the Outback runs on diesel and it's not uncommon to get into out of the way places and turn up at a fuel station and see no petrol. <laughs> Sorry, but diesel is always available because trucks and land cruisers and things of that nature, all of those common vehicles out there in the Outback, the Outback stops if diesel stops, but not so much with petrol because that's only, you know, visitors, blow-ins from the big smoke kind of thing, okay? That's worth remembering. So, I just suggest that you take some time before you get to the dealership to think about this stuff. It is really important, okay? The worst thing to do is to stand on the X, right? And you're about to get signed up. And they can't sign you up for a car unless you choose a particular powertrain. You gotta have it all locked in with cars, right? You gotta have the color and the spec level and the powertrain and that's the vehicle that you decide to buy, right? And the worst thing of all time is to make the wrong decision about something that is kind of crucial, like the powertrain, without giving it due consideration. Like, dude, if it's just a car and you're just an average driver and it might as well just be another appliance, the two-litre Atmo petrol six-speed auto gonna be just fine. If you like having a big rev and you like that direct shift gearbox thing, then yeah, the 1.6 turbo is good. But me, right, I am going to buy the diesel if I'm in the market for that car because to me, that is just the premium package with that car. And I would find it the most satisfying. And I could also look at myself in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm also saving 14% on my CO2 emissions if that kind of consideration was important to me. And hey, it kind of is because the climate emergency is real and you need to take at least practical, tangible steps towards lowering your own individual CO2 emissions if you care about that. And it's easy to fall into the trap of rhetoric, you know, all of this spin that happens about diesel and it being allegedly filthy. From a CO2 point of view, it's anything but when you compare it with petrol.